Welcome. My name is Patrick Kern, and along with my Corona friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In this episode, we explore the many ways in which we can approach the revision of a manuscript and the crafting of a response letter in reply to editorial guidance and reviewer feedback. Along the way, we also discuss spring break for octogenarians, spitting on graves, being flabby and unfocused, Milo and Otis, meat on a stick, subway jumpers, understanding square roots, voodoo dolls, ugly babies, Klingons, hostage negotiators, and rejected rejections. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So I was checking in with my mom last night. (laughs) Um, She lives in Denver, but she is a snowbird in Tucson for a couple of months Uh uh, out of each year. And she's actually been caught down there. She's in this little apartment in Tucson, but she's loving it because she lives in a nursing home in Denver and they're on total lockdown. Uh So she is actually doing great. She's just having a ball down there. It's kind of like an 88 year old on spring break. (laughs) <laughs> That's an image I don't really want to see. Uh, but she asked about you. Aww. She was very touched by the whole limerick thing. Uh-huh. And uh, she she asked how you were doing. And I said, you were just fine. You mean how I'm doing emotionally after she trashed my limerick and just desk rejected me? <laughs> you were desk rejected by an 88-year-old. Now, in fairness to my mom, prior to retirement was a uh, professional writer. Not something that would have come across your desk. Mm -hmm. Mom was an expert in raising your family in the Catholic tradition. Oh. You're looking at me through Zoom and you see the product of raising your child in the Catholic tradition. Uh But yes, she had grounds to desk reject your limerick, (laughs) which I imagine was not your first rejection. Um, yeah, not me. In fact, I remember my first rejection. You always remember your first rejection. I, do you remember your first rejection? <laughs> oh, yeah. This is when I'm a graduate student. This was before email. So that meant that everything took place through regular mail. And I had sent out a manuscript to a journal. And <laughs> pretty much the day I mailed it out, every day after that, I'd walk into the office and check my mailbox, you know, have they got back to me yet? Have they got back to me yet? And I remember finally one day there was an envelope sitting there and I didn't get mail as a graduate student. So if there's something in there, there's something in there. And I went over and I grabbed it and I'm standing in the middle of the general office. I open the envelope so slowly, I pull it out and it was a rejection letter, right? Just straight up rejection I was just so sad, right? I felt everything in me just sort of drop out. I'm standing there for I don't know how long, and one of the faculty members, Dr. Sachs, sees me, and he comes over, and he he says, you look so sad. Why, you know, why the long face? I said, ah, you know, I worked so hard on this paper, and I submitted it, and I was hoping that it would get accepted, and it it got rejected, and he put his hand on my shoulder, a very grandfatherly thing to do, and he looked at me, and he says, you know what, Greg, I've never had an article rejected. (laughs) And he just walked away. (laughs) That that was my my first rejection in all its glory. (laughs) Ah, mm-hmm. the supportiveness of senior mm-hmm. faculty in our field. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. 
I remember my first rejection. I also was a grad student. I too got the thick envelope in the mailbox. There was something very satisfying to that. Getting the email doesn't have that same satisfaction, especially when you want to throw it against the wall. And <laughs> But I opened it up and it too was rejected. I went to the first review. It is still burned into my long-term memory forever. So when I'm 90 and I don't recognize my own children, I'm still going to remember this reviewer line. (laughs) And it said, the only redeeming aspect of this manuscript is that it is so poorly written that it fails to convey the incorrect conclusions (laughs) drawn here. Is it a wonder that any of us stays in the field? You okay? Do you need to talk? I'm, I'm okay. But it, it's an interesting juxtaposition because the line he wrote was breathtakingly inappropriate to write to any colleague. Absolutely. Much less knowing full well I was a junior person. Mm-hmm. So completely inappropriate. Yet the following couple of paragraphs helped me craft a better informed, stronger contribution. And the paper was better for it, even though he was a giant. (laughs) And I'm using the pronoun intentionally of he because he signed his review. Of course he did. I will not share the senior person who did this, although I shall spit on his grave when the time comes. So I would say the first message for people listening, the first take home message, and we've said this before, is that although I can't speak for you, I get stuff rejected all the time. No matter how far along I have gotten, I still get rejection letters. I mean, I'm better at my craft, but I still get rejection letters. I still get stuff that really gets under my skin. And and so what I'm hoping in today's episode is we can talk about the review process and maybe interject some personal anecdotes along the way, although that's a great one. And then maybe talk to our listeners about how do you deal with the reviews that you get? And I don't mean that emotionally. I mean, how do you craft responses? How do you try to work through the process? How's that? That sounds great. I too get rejected all the time. On Monday, I had huge plans of this thing I was going to do. And it was not in a journal article kind of thing, but a side gig that I was really excited about and really invested on. And on Tuesday, the entire thing was dead. So yes, this happens all the time. It's one of those interesting things that if you go to baseball statistics and look at the top 20 home run hitters of Mm -hmm. all time and the top 20 strikeout leaders Mm -hmm. of all time, there's quite a bit of overlap on those lists. And I love that. The home run leaders tend to be the strikeout leaders. So maybe that's one of the themes for today's episode as well. I like that. The game right now is at the plate. You're going to strike out and you're going to have the walk of shame back to the dugout. (laughs) But there are going to be other times that you do not. Go down swinging. Maybe as a starting point, we can do kind of a Disney's, what is the one? There's a dog and cat, Otis and something. Milo Milo and Otis. Milo and Otis. (laughs) Which I got to tell you, I don't know how many animal protection laws they violated in filming that movie. 
because mm-hmm. they throw them in a crate and then drop them in a raging rapids. And mm-hmm. it's not CGI. <laughs> There's a dog and a cat going down the rapids they, in the box. They went through a lot of Milo's and Otis's. There, were, there were a lot of Milo's and Otis's. Milo and Otis, they're traveling far away from home. And the only way back is together. We're going to do the Milo and Otis of what uh-huh. happens to your manuscript when you click submit and it goes into the system. Because there is a unknown magical behind the curtain kind of aspect of where does it journey? Where does it go and how does it come back to you? Do you want to do that? Sure. Uh, you press send. It goes into some server. It used to go directly to the editor, but it goes into some server, usually managed by the journal's publisher. It goes to the editor then, and the editor will give it a quick look, not a read, I would say. If the editor looks at it and sees initially that the fit to the journal really just isn't there, or if there's some other really obvious problem, then you might get what I got from Patrick's mom. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You'll get the quick message back that says something about the fit being inappropriate to this journal. But assuming you make it past that hurdle then the editor will either farm it out to an associate editor, if the journal has an associate editor structure, or it will go out to reviewers directly. But many journals now will have an associate editor structure, and it might be farmed out on the basis of the topic. It might be farmed out on the basis of workload. could be a variety of things. And then the editor will decide who are appropriate reviewers for this particular manuscript. And we would like to believe that that's based on content knowledge. I don't think it's always based on content knowledge. I think sometimes it's based on reviewer availability. But for the most part, you want to get a couple of people who know something about the particular topic. And if there isn't somebody, then it is associate editor's prerogative to try and pull someone in who's not on the editorial board to go out for an ad hoc reviewer. So then it goes out to the reviewers, whether they're on the editorial board or the ad hoc reviewers. And they are given a time window (laughs) that is meant to be a hard time window. It seems to be taken a lot more as suggestions, much in the way that Patrick takes uh, speed limit signs (laughs) as suggestions. There should be felonious reviewer (laughs) returns. They should have a special... I think you got one. When you hit the fourth month (laughs) that it moves from... Uh-huh. A misdemeanor to a felony. So then it goes out to the reviewers and then the through various electronically automated mechanisms uh, all the way down to personal cajoling, the reviews should be coming back in. Occasionally you get someone who goes rogue and doesn't deliver, but you get the reviews back in. And then it is up to the associate editor or editor, depending on the structure of the journal, to try to collate all of this information. And that's a challenge. Do you want to say anything about that process? The editor can make really one of four decisions. One is accept the manuscript as it is. One is to accept it pending some revision. One is the typical revise and resubmit to be considered again. And then one is a flat reject. So really what Greg and I are talking about here today is the revise and resubmit. So Mm -hmm. the editor and the body of reviewers are saying, we believe that there's sufficient promise here in a manuscript that could potentially come to fruition, but that additional work is needed before that decision is made. What's the longest you have ever waited for a review as an author? 
Ken Bolin and I wrote a paper, I think we submitted it to Psychometrica and it was like nine months. Wow. Yeah. I, I waited over a year and contacted the journal and they go, oh gosh, sorry. It fell between the cracks as we were changing editors from one shift mm. to the next, which was uh, abysmal. One thing that maybe some of the more junior authors don't know is that one of the reasons it takes so long to get your review back, one of the reasons that reviewers go all the way up to the wire is what happens when they submit their review back to the editor is they get another one to review. <laughs> you are exactly right. I just recently submitted my review back to Psychomethods and the mm -hmm. next day... <laughs> There is an incentive system to sit on it as long as possible. Absolutely. No good deed goes unpunished here. And with regard to the editor, you know, the editor who may or may not drill down into the details of all of the comments, editors are seldom compensated in any way for mm. this task. So the system as a whole is one that sort of does the best it can. There are unpaid reviewers who treat this as their duty to the field. And there are many benefits of being a reviewer, right? You get to see what's going on out there in the world. You get to interact with wonderful colleagues. But this is not a perfect process. And these are people doing this because they believe in the journal, believe in, in helping to advance the field forward. But no doubt, we have been frustrated as authors ourselves. And no doubt, we as reviewers uh, and associate editors have frustrated people yeah. along the way. I have deep respect for people who take on editorial positions because there is very little in the way of compensation for this. In the fall, you and I were together up in Baltimore and you took us to, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was the Brazilian steakhouse where mm -hmm. people were walking around with, with meat on a stick <laughs> and would just come and cut it and put it on your plate. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I never wanted to leave that place. But Doug Steinley was with us, and Doug mm -hmm. is currently editor of Psychological Methods, one of the, the smartest, nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. But just over dinner, he commented that he had 73 manuscripts that he was currently handling in some way or another. And it's hard for me to even get my head around that responsibility of having 73 manuscripts that he was adjudicating. As my mom would mm -hmm. say, there's a special place in heaven for these reviewers and editors and associate editors. Pulling us back to Milo and Otis. Two friends who share a love of adventure and the adventure of love. <laughs> they write a cover letter. They enclose the reviews. And so they'll say... I am happy to be able to extend an invitation to consider a revised manuscript. Please revise the manuscript with respect to the reviewer's comments and my guidance above. Mm -hmm. And then here's what we really want to unpack today. Please include a cover letter that articulates the changes that you've made and justifies changes that you may choose not to make. And please get this back to me within X amount of time. Mm -hmm. That's when Milo and Otis come home and <laughs> you now have your original manuscript, you have the editorial letter, and you have three reviews. What happens next? So I think we are going to move toward, although I don't want to get there quite yet, we're going to move toward dealing with the reviews that you get. 
But I might ask you, do you have any super memorable views? You mentioned one a few episodes ago about Agatha Christie. Yeah, that one. And that was totally fair, right? <laughs> I love it when you get something and you read it and you're like, yeah, no, that's that's fair. Yeah, I had submitted a paper to Psycho Methods and it came back with, this is the paper Agatha Christie would have written had she been a quantitative psychologist. <laughs> and they were completely right because mm -hmm. I was trying to weave this story. I, mm -hmm. I would literally say things like, we get the results from this. You might be tempted to think that. And I would say something and I'd say, however, we have not yet considered the importance of this. And so it was like, yeah, no, that one was pretty <laughs> funny. Just a couple of years ago, our group submitted a paper where we were doing some growth modeling with longitudinal scoring and whatnot, and we got a pretty grumpy reviewer who took exception to the way that we had done it analytically, and they had a little standalone paragraph that said they recommended that we consult the collected work of Curran and colleagues so that we might understand <laughs> how to better approach doing this in practice. And so I really, I actually have that thumbtack to my wall. How about you? Well, one is that we wrote a paper that I think would have qualified for the Agatha Christie, would have at least nominated <laughs> for the Agatha Christie Award. It was very long. It clearly exceeded guidelines for length with regard to the journal. Mm -hmm. And we got the review back and the editor said that it was flabby and unfocused. <laughs> And I remember nothing else about the review. One of my co-authors and friends, Laura Stapleton, on that paper, she still she still uses that phrase when like we'll submit some things between each other and she'll say it's flabby and unfocused. Uh, so that sticks with me a little bit. We had a review about a year and a half ago where the reviewer actually made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And the reviewer completely trashed the paper, the theme of which was we didn't know how a square root worked and the paper was unnecessarily complex. We had taken a simple idea and made it appear complex. The reviewer actually referred us to a website with a very tongue-in-cheek article that someone had written on how to take a simple idea and make it complex, essentially saying that mm. you guys are doing this. The problem was the reviewer was wrong. We're pretty familiar with how square roots work, and the reviewer had, had made an error in understanding it. But that was very, very strange, almost bizarre. And it, the tenor of it reminded me of that comment that you got where it was signed by the, you know, by the person. Ours was not signed. Although we know who it was. <laughs> we can tell. So you knew that um, was me? Yeah. <laughs> Darn if, you, it. if you looked at some Khan Academy videos on Square Roots, <laughs> <laughs> if you would, we'd sure appreciate it. Let's use that as an entry point then of how do you respond? So we get these reviews. You get it electronically. My first recommendation is print it all out staple it together and throw it against the wall because there is a cathartic <laughs> feeling for doing that. I know it's not ecologically friendly, but it is emotionally beneficial. A couple of days later, you go pick it up and you say, yeah, I see. Okay. I see why that was an issue. And so what you have to do is we need to do two things. We have to organize the comments and concerns in a way that we draft out a plan of attack to revise the manuscript itself. So that's part A is how do you go about revising the manuscript itself? 
And then part B is given that, how do you write a cover letter to the editor in a way that's effective and tight and focused that articulates two really important things? One is describing what you did change in the manuscript and why. But then what I'm going to strongly recommend is when appropriate of articulating what you did not change and why. Because reviewers are not infallible. And as Greg, you said in your story, sometimes they're abjectly wrong. I've had that before somewhat recently. They made a very strong statement about a multivariate growth model that was factually incorrect. Some of it is you have to deal with that, but some is more stylistic is to say, well, that is one way that we could approach the problem, but here's the reason why we didn't choose that. One thing that I hammer with my students in their own milestone projects, masters and dissertations in a defense meeting is to aspire to defend, but not be defensive. Mm -hmm. And so it's trying to find that interstitial region in which there was a reason you decided certain things. There was a motivation you decided certain things and you want to justify why you did that, but then you don't just want to be defensive on all things and to say, well, I did it that way because it's right. And so it's finding that middle ground. What I'm envisioning is maybe you and I trading words of, quote, wisdom along the way. Yeah, let's go back and forth and I'll start on even a more pedantic level. Mm -hmm. How do you organize a set of reviewers' concerns, both in your head, but also in an editorial letter? None of the things that we're going to talk about today are fixed in stone recommendations of do's and don'ts. It varies Mm -hmm. by author, it varies by manuscript, it varies by journal and editor. These are all kind of broader approaches. The first thing I do is organize the editorial letter and the the set of reviews. So you can do it in a highly structured way. You literally clip out the concerns. So reviewer 1.1, and you copy and paste that into a Word document, and Uh then you respond to it. And the concern and the response and the concern... So there's a point by point. What I will sometimes do is try to organize them thematically. And Mm -hmm. so to say, all right, the editor and the three reviewers raised four broad issues in one way or another. And then I'll articulate, there was a concern about the way in which we measured depression and anxiety. Reviewer one and two were concerned about this and reviewer three about that. And then I address the issue kind of more broadly cutting across the reviewer instead of saying reviewer 1.8, reviewer 1.9, and so on. How do you organize your thinking? Exactly the way you hate it. (laughs) Uh, Yep, can't stand it. Can't stand it. Here's my logic, although there's definitely a strategy to the way you do it. So I'm going to say something nice about what you said eventually. My assumption is that reviewers are very egocentric and that they want to know that their concerns specifically are addressed. So when a letter comes back of the thematic form that you have, I think you're making the reviewer work for it a little bit. Is my concern in this theme? Is my concern in that theme? So I I envision reviewers going through and saying, all right, where's the reviewer two comments? Here it is. And then point by point by point by point by point. So I do it because I, I think it's the way reviewers operate. 
Um, the nice thing about the way that you suggest it, though, is it has this this more meta approach to things that you are trying to address the concepts that need to be dealt with, and you're not dealing with some of the minutia like you misspelled this word on page forty six. Which, by the way, you get all the way down to that kind of feedback as mm-hmm. well. So I I see some value in what you're doing, but I don't know how reviewer friendly it is. I think it's how I I. Th- Think about it as I'm revising the manuscript. I feel like you can start to build a Frankenstein's monster if you respond to reviewer one, comment three, reviewer one, comment four, and then to two, and then to, you know, reviewer three is I feel like the thematic approach is how I approach the revision of the paper. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I communicate that back to the editor. So here's an interesting thing, and let me get your opinion on this, because there's disagreement across colleagues when I've talked about this in the past. When I write my letter with my revision, I write it to the editor Mm. where the reviewers are third person. So I will say, well, reviewer two raised this issue. I felt like this was not fundamental in the way that they described it. And so my letter is to the editor for Mm -hmm. them to act upon And that's why the thematic works better. Now, some of my colleagues do not do that and write either mentally or in the construction of the language directly to the reviewer as if they're responding to them. And I think whether you itemize it or do thematic weights it a little bit differently as to whether you view the letter to the editor or in responding to the reviewers themselves. Mm -hmm. How do you view that? My cover letter is written to the editor. The direct responses to comments that the editor has raised in his or her own assessment of the paper, whether it's literally a a reading of the paper or drawing on the key points, I will respond to the editor in those comments specifically. And then when I get into each block for each reviewer, I am talking to that reviewer. I want that reviewer to feel heard. I don't want that reviewer to feel like I'm talking to mom or dad about what you said. So my strategy is to make each of those reviewers feel like they have been considered point by point. I like that. I do. I tend not to do that myself. Now, there's some papers where I might. I did a paper recently where the reviewer raised two very specific things that were on target. Yeah. And I directly responded to those. But I view all the correspondence between me and the editor. So the editor Mm -hmm. is getting feedback from the reviewers and he or she communicates that to me on their behalf. And then I'm communicating back to the editor who can then farm that back out to the reviewers. All right. So we don't necessarily agree on the form that your letter takes when it goes back. And I still think that's okay. And I think from an advice standpoint, obviously, (laughs) both of these strategies work. I think yours is very thoughtful in its thematic construction. And the strategy that I (laughs) beat into each of my students about going through point by point also seems to have some modicum of success. Either way that you go, what I would like us to do now is start drilling down to some of the issues about dealing with the comments that you get from the reviewers, how you might respond, whether it's in a thematic way or a very uh, point-by-point kind of way. Absolutely. And to clarify, I have written responses to reviews that have been Mm point-by-point, going with an underlying theme of the whole episode is it depends. It depends on a whole variety of things, but I would say more often than not, I'm a thematic guy. Okay. 
whatever the organization and form and tone of the letter is, like what's a recommendation you have or a life lesson learned? All right, I'll start with a silly one and then move to a more serious one. My students and I actually have a reviewer to Voodoo Doll. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so we had a paper come out last year, but I let the student jam pins into that doll. And it's really kind of a personality test to see where the student puts the pins. So we have we have a little in-house reviewer to Voodoo Doll. Um, I highly recommend that strategy. All right, let me go in with a broader suggestion and then we can start getting more specific. One thing is, is that good reviewers took a lot of time to think about your paper, right? These are other people out there in the field. They have agreed to go through your paper. And I would say for the most part, the reviewers have spent a lot of time thinking about your paper, a lot of time pointing out issues. And I think we see the reviewers as the enemy when we're the author, and the first thing I will say is that's not a particularly productive mindset. We can joke about that, and I absolutely joke about it all the way down to having a voodoo doll. But what I tell my students is that, in fact, the reviewers are there for us to make the science better, to make our work better. And I view them as team members, and the tone that I'm going to have in the responses that I give really take that kind of view, that we are all on this team trying to make this work better, even though I take some of the comments personally, even though I feel like they're calling my baby ugly. Uh, at the end of the day, I really approach this as people who want to make this work better, and I share that goal. So just from the start, I ask people to try to adopt a, uh, a healthier mindset as they approach this. Yep, I agree. Be respectful. That I really push in my own stuff and, and in the work of my students is just that. You know, somebody took time for no pay at all to help you form a better contribution to the field. And even if they're being a wiener about it, which sometimes <laughs> they will be, fortunately not often, by raising concerns and questions, they're trying to save you some later embarrassment or rejection or being incorrect, right? If you think about it, a paper goes to print and that's forever. Yeah. And they're trying to help you make that as best a product as can possibly be. So I completely agree. And there are, you know, two dimensions of that that I think are important. One is respect the fact that they might be right and you're wrong. Mm hmm that all of us can make errors, all of us, not only abject errors, but maybe there's a better way of doing something than we're aware of. And maybe somebody has put 20 or 30 years in the field and is sharing that experience with you. And so it's two sides of the same coin as one is respect that they know more than you do. But the flip side, and this is particularly important for more junior people, respect that you may know more than they do. Mm -hmm. Reviewers are not infallible. Reviewers can make mistakes. And there's a degree of self-confidence that you need to have, particularly as a junior person, where you say, you know, reviewer two raised a very important question, but I respectfully disagree in the extent to which this undermines the conclusions that we're drawing here. And that moves into the defend defensive continuum. I think a lot of comments back to reviewers is reviewer education, helping the reviewer understand 
why is it you did a particular thing in this particular setting? And why do you think that's the best option available? Oh my gosh, you said so many things in there that I like, and I would just like to comment on. The very first is the tone that you take in your response. You use you know, the term respectfully. I try to help my students when we go through the revision process, I try to help them to have actually a grateful tone, not just respectful, but also grateful. And we will say things, and this might drive you a bit crazy because you prefer the more thematic approach, but but we will insert comments like, you know, sometimes reviewers will say something nice and we'll respond to that. Thank you for your support in what we did here. Um, we agree with this. Or if a reviewer makes a comment about you might think about something differently, we'll say something like, yeah, we had thought about that as well. And the reason we ultimately decided with going the way that we're going is the following. So having a positive tone, a cooperative tone, uh, a grateful tone, it's not a, a sycophantic tone at all. It's all in the spirit of hey, we're collaborating on this in a way. And, and reviewers in some way are, are like ghost collaborators. And they, they can be incredibly helpful in the process. So I liked the tone that you set. I really also liked what you said about you might know more than the reviewer. I mean, you're working on a project where you are supposed to know more about that particular issue. And so sometimes when it comes back, you do have to educate the reviewer a little bit. Um, you have to explain things in a way that they might grasp. And and by the way, part of it might even, in fact, be on you for not having been a bit more didactic in how you crafted that part of the paper. I remember I was helping a colleague in an applied field who had done a path analysis, and one of the reviewers wrote something back that was not correct that said something like, well, I looked in your correlation matrix and the relation between these two variables was incredibly weak. And yet in your path analysis, you got a big statistically significant path that obviously can't happen. You obviously did something wrong and I reject. And the colleague came to me and said, I, I don't think I did anything wrong. And my answer was, you didn't do anything wrong. These things can happen. And so we wrote a response actually explaining how this phenomenon can occur. And then that informed the revision of the paper where we explained, you know, about what appears to be this contradiction in correlation versus versus the path. So I very much like that you refer to this as helping to educate the reviewer. And I would just say in a collaborative way. To reiterate what you just said, I will often write in a response exactly what you just said of clarifying something. And then I'll say something like, we failed to adequately describe this in the initial draft, and we now have expanded upon this to help the reader understand this issue. Part of it is that kind of respect, right? Mm -hmm. It's the corollary of Hippocratic Oath of don't be a wiener, like do no harm and don't be a wiener. <laughs> is, that, is, is that the translation? You know, is exactly. That the it's much uh -huh. more impactful in Latin. Yeah. Uh, avoidus wieneris <laughs> is actually on the, the seal. I've is, seen that. Um, to, not only, I think, is it a polite, respectful way of responding, but it's also true. You know, we have some crazy ass latent curve model, bivariate predictors, multiple group, and the reviewer says, I had trouble navigating the description of it. And I go back and look and it's like, yeah, no, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. It's on you to communicate yeah. to the reader what you're doing and why. And if you fail in doing that, that's a completely legitimate criticism to be raised by the reviewer. Absolutely. And there's so much in your head about the work that you're doing, right? And sometimes you don't use all the words necessary to make that clear. So 
just own it. Don't don't treat it as a criticism. Just say, yeah, we went back and reviewed that section and it really was lacking in the necessary detail for the reviewer. So thank you for pointing that out. We have revised it in the following way. And going to your point earlier is their concern is validated. Mm -hmm. And even if you stick to the same thing that you were doing before, you've taken responsibility for not presenting that in a way that a typical reader could navigate in any reasonable fashion. Now, related to that is something that I learned from my own advisor, Lori Chasson, which is often the best defense is a good offense. Get out ahead of these issues in your original submission. So beat the reviewer to the punch, saying things like, it might be argued that, and give a critique of your own work, Mm -hmm. and then say, however... This is less relevant here because, and take that off the table as as a critique. She taught us how to so effectively use footnotes. We would actually joke that we would get a full manuscript nested inside our (laughs) manuscript written entirely in footnotes. We would say anxiety was scored in this way, and there would be a footnote and say, there might be a concern that these two items contaminated this score We re-estimated the final models using our scale score without these items and no substantive differences were found. Mm -hmm. It takes it off the table. And I got to tell you, when I'm reviewing a manuscript, that pisses me off to no end because I'll sit on the couch, I'll have the manuscript, I'll be scribbling things out and I'll scribble out anxiety contaminated by two wayward items. And then I hit footnote five and I'm like, oh, hell, there goes one of my comments and I scratch it out. So, so this is off in a, in, a, in a good way, I guess. No, no, I'm no. genuinely pissed off. You have issues. I, <laughs> this is just occurring to you. So think about in your very first submission, be your own worst reviewer, mm-hmm. right? One thing Lori had when we would have a manuscript done or a grant review done is she'd ask for an RTS review, which was rip to sh- review. <laughs> and it is go after it, man, blood in the water, uh-huh. shark with uh-huh. chum, go after this anticipate what even the weaneriest of the wiener reviews would say. And then is there anything we can build into our submission to help deflect that? I love that. That is actually a very Klingon approach that you try to kill it. That reference might be lost on you. Yeah, I had friends when I was a kid. So yes. (laughs) Can Um, you speak that in the Klingon language? I'm not going to be your party monkey. I'm going to edit all of this out. So, <laughs> All right. Give me something else. Absolutely. This one is an interesting one given your thematic approach and my very, very orderly bulleted approach. But the structure that I use is organizing all of the comments as per issues that each reviewer has raised. Um, We have the comment, we have our reflection on it, we have whatever actions are taken. Something that I really get annoyed with when I am a reviewer is when my comments are blown off. Mm. 
So in your thematic approach, it makes me wonder as if I'm a reviewer and I have to hunt for, well, did they address that or did they not address that? That's going to be even more irritating to me. But I get a manuscript as a reviewer. I get a manuscript back and I'm saying, what the heck? They didn't even address this issue. It's almost as if some authors are gambling, right? That Mm. if I address enough of these things, that maybe it's going to be enough to get me over the top. And that irritates me. It doesn't irritate me if they tell me that they're not going to address something, if they detail it and say, you know, we thought about this and the reason we didn't follow that suggestion is we thought it would take the paper in a direction that wasn't part of the intended scope or it would increase the length of this work massively or I don't mind you explaining to me why you're not going to make the changes or why you don't agree with my points. But if you don't even address it, then I hate you as a human being. Yep. And that's... <laughs> yep. And I totally agree on both sides, both author and reviewer. Mm-hmm. It's like a parenting thing with me too, is I'll get frustrated with one of my girls when I ask them to do something and they just ignore it, mm-hmm. right? As I hate being ignored. Both my girls are like 50 IQ points smarter than I am. And they they can like talk me out of anything on a logical basis. And I'm totally cool with that. But don't just blow me off. The term we sometimes use on our group is that subway jumping. When somebody goes through the gates, somebody will press up behind you and go in with you and not pay. And so that's a subway jumper. And I view what you just described as intellectual subway jumping, nice. which is thematically, you bury something Mm -hmm. in there with the intent of not addressing it. Mm -hmm. So maybe a corollary to my thematic organization is that you don't do that, that you don't use kind of a fog of war and hope Mm -hmm. that somebody doesn't notice that you're just ignoring something. So I completely agree with that. I think maybe we wear the reviewers down in two different ways. Yours is you take a very thematic approach and they they have to engage in what you're doing and as a revision on a different level. And there's aspects of this that I really like, that you're sort of forcing them to think about things at the bigger picture level and not some of the minutiae. My strategy wears them down with detail. This is not an exaggeration. We have submitted a response letter longer than the original manuscript where people have raised very complex issues that required us to provide some side proofs, provide from some side work to, as part of what you said, the education of the reviewer when they make comments that are incorrect. And in fact, it's single spaced. Um, so it's quite long, but. I try to wear them down with completeness. I try to leave them with nowhere to go. Every single issue that has been raised has a response from a, we are grateful to we disagree and here's why. So it's a different strategy. And again, both of these can be effective strategies, I would say. They can. And I have used both, but a 15 page single spaced response letter drives me insane. Mm -hmm. I don't assume that each reviewer is going to read it, by the way would be nice if they did. I assume that each reviewer in the interest of their own time Mm -hmm. is going to go back to the letter that corresponds to them and see whether or not they felt heard. You know, Greg, I think we're finding almost a philosophical difference in approaching this. I view the editor Mm -hmm. as a hostage negotiator, all right, (laughs) is... 
the editor, she is the go-between between the mm-hmm. author and the reviewers. And the author and the reviewers are never in direct contact. It's all through the hostage negotiation. <laughs> and the detailed letter I see as you're bypassing the negotiator and you're going directly to the hostage takers. <laughs> Everything with you is war. Everything with you is conflict. Everything, dude, (laughs) therapy, (laughs) therapy. Oh, God. So, but it's interesting because I haven't thought about it like this, but in our different perspectives on this is my view is I'm writing to the editor to adjudicate, did I address the issues that were raised by the reviewers? And you were saying that, you know, that I'm kind of leaving it to the reviewer to try to sort through. Actually, I feel like I'm leaving it to the editor. Mm. It's the editor's job to figure out, am I addressing the concerns of the reviewer adequately? Because Mm -hmm. they're going to make the ultimate decision of, are they going to release the hostage or are they going to disappear in the dark (laughs) of night? And yeah, I got to come up with a new one. I I appreciate that. Yeah. It's just interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. I'm a kumbaya guy on this. Can't we all get along? We're all here on the same team, yada, yada. So I... I view the decision that the editor is going to make as one that is informed by the reviewers, informed by the the sense that they get of whether or not they have felt heard, whether or not they were agreed with, if they felt their comments have been heard and addressed. This is assuming that it is going back out for review, right? The editor, she can make a decision all on her own without sending it back out for review. So in that sense, your strategy addressing the editor directly might be the right play. But I would like every reviewer to communicate to the editor that they feel heard, they feel their comments have been addressed, and even when they were disagreed with, they understand why they were disagreed with, and it's good enough. And then the editor takes that and says, ah, they all seem happy. I agree with everything you just said, and I would put, I'm not sure I would use the term kumbaya, but I would put myself in exactly the same mindset. I just think there's a different delivery mechanism that I use. Is mm-hmm. I see the editor as a benevolent dictator, and <laughs> I'm not trying to convince the reviewer. I'm trying to convince the editor. And maybe it's in part how I approached when I was an AE myself. I accepted some manuscripts that reviewers recommended rejection, And I rejected some manuscripts Mm -hmm. that reviewers recommended acceptance. I never saw it as a democratic process that if Mm -hmm. there were two accepts and one reject, then it would be accepted. Sure. Yeah, I I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but in a way, I kind of don't care about convincing the reviewer. I care about convincing the editor. And Mm -hmm. obviously, I want to respond to the reviewer's concerns. I take them very seriously. I think that they are experts in the field. They are working to help me create the best product possible. I agree all of that, but Mm -hmm. my focus is on the communication with the editor. And if the editor wants to adjudicate that out to the reviewer, well, then that's up to her. I think we're nibbling around the edge of more a philosophical difference of approaching this entire process. So if I can pull some of these things together, our heated agreement Uh, is (laughs) around some of the following points that we do try to make sure that we have an overarching positive tone in our communication. Yes. Agreed. Yes. 
And we do try to make sure that we have addressed the issues as we see them going through the manuscript, whether it is on a more thematic level or in a more itemized level. We don't like to leave things hanging, and we recommend that people are conscientious and detailed in how they do that. Yes. And and that we view this as an opportunity to educate the reviewers when there is disagreement or there is misunderstanding in a respectful tone. We seem to agree on that particular point. Mm-hmm. And what I will reiterate is that we still get rejected. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, it is possible, don't tell anyone, but it's possible that occasionally we do work that maybe shouldn't be published. And at the end of the whole process, I learn from that. And it damages me, you know, a little bit. I, I feel wounded a little bit. But when I walk away from it and think about it, I will say most of the time I agree with it later. It takes a while to distance myself from it. But at the end, I realize this is not really personal. It's not personal. It's only business. You should know, Godfather. It is about the quality of the work and what am I going to take from this review to learn from it so that the next work that I do, whether it's the work itself or how I communicate about the work, whether or not, you know, to try to make it better in the end. I have had several papers rejected over the years that I was livid when it happened. And now I thank the system for working that those papers aren't out in the ether because they shouldn't have been. Not that there was like a programming error or something, but that it just wasn't a good idea. And I drew conclusions that shouldn't have been drawn. Mm -hmm. So I completely agree with that. A couple of thoughts as we're kind of wrapping up is, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing, and, and it's a corollary to something that you raised, in rare circumstances, it may come down to where you need to make a change for a paper to be accepted. And if you don't make that change, it will not be accepted. I've been in this situation before. And one time, in 25 years of writing papers, one time did I write back to the editor and say, I don't believe in these changes. I do not believe that this is the appropriate way of going. And I respectfully will not be resubmitting a paper. And the thing that you have to remember is your name is on the paper, not the reviewers. Mm -hmm. When a paper is published and out there, that's yours to own for eternity. You can't be in a position where you're making a change to the paper that you don't believe in just to get it published. That's just something I think it's a tough place to be in, but it's that defend defensive as there's a point where you maybe have to throw down and say, I do not agree with this and I will not make this change. Now, I had two circumstances over 25 years where one, the editor said, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Please consider us again for an outlet for your future work. And another one who wrote back later the day and said, I agree, you don't need to address this. Let's move forward with the paper. Hmm. I'm one for one (laughs) on Mm -hmm. drawing a line in the sand and then having some adjudication of that. The, The thing that I like about what you said is that it reflects a commitment to the outcome and the outcome is not publication. The outcome is the science itself. And when you feel that a particular suggestion is going to compromise the work, 
you maintained fidelity to the work itself, to the ideas. And I like that. And that's a very, that's a very hard thing sometimes to do when you are early in your career and you're like, dude, I need some pubs. So, you know, I just want to applaud you and hope that we are instilling those values in our own advisees, in our own mentees along the way that the goal is to do quality work and the publications and presentations are a sign of that. They are not the goal in and of themselves. Exactly. There are other journals. There are other outlets. We talked in an earlier episode. I forget what it is, grad advice or something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a, a lesson I wish I had learned 20 years ago is when to walk away from a project. And sometimes if what is required to get published is not what you want to put your name on, then turn to something mm -hmm. else because you're completely capable of writing something else. Absolutely. And then here, I will maybe wrap up with a, a final very brief brief anecdote. One of my highest <laughs> cited papers was actually rejected. And so I submitted it. I got three good reviews. I got a very thoughtful letter from the editor. And in no uncertain terms, it said, I am sorry that I'm unable to move forward with the manuscript. Please consider us as an outlet for your future work. And I read the editorial letter and I read the reviews and I thought they were very good reviews and very good concerns. But I honestly mm -hmm. thought that they weren't serious enough to lead to a rejection that I could address them. Mm -hmm. So I revised the paper. I wrote a cover letter and I resubmitted it and it was accepted. <laughs> and so do remember that editorial letters often, you know, it goes back to the pirate code. It's less of a code <laughs> and more of a set of guidelines. <laughs> So, I reject your rejection. Exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> but I did it very respectfully as I, I wrote back and uh -huh. I said, I know this is atypical. And if you disagree with this decision, don't send it out for review. I completely understand. They did and it was accepted. And it's one of my more impactful papers. So do remember, I guess my only point, especially for junior people, is you have some agency in this, right? You're not a passive osmotic, oh, the senior person is telling me this isn't good. And so I have to listen to that. Open a dialogue is you mm -hmm. can send an email. You don't have to do what I did and like literally resubmit a revision. I do have to admit that my intention was rather focused as I felt that if they had a revision and a cover letter and everything in one place, it would make it easier. But if you get a letter from an editor that you question, remember, these are just people and they're people in the field and they're supportive and they're invested and they want what's best for you. Reach out to them. Send them an email, call them and say, I really appreciate what you're doing here to help me. But I feel like if given the opportunity, I could address these concerns. Could I ask permission to resubmit mm -hmm. a version of this and make an attempt to address the concerns that were raised here? And maybe they'll say no, maybe they'll say yes, but why not ask? Be an advocate for your work. I like that. Okay. I am at a loss for these wonderful wrapping up words of wisdom. Do you have something that I, you want to do? I thought that was my wrapping up with words of wisdom. That was it. I'm tapping out. Okay. <laughs> well, we hope in our meanderings that there have been some uh, helpful tidbits along the way when it comes to the manuscript revision process and maybe even the manuscript preparation process in anticipation of the reviews that you will go through. 
It reflects a little bit of our experiences as authors, a little bit of our experiences on the other side as reviewers and associate editors. And we hope that some folks out there will find this a little bit helpful as they are moving their own research agendas forward. My only final reminder is reiterating what's come up a few times is everybody is in this together. The reviewer is not the enemy. The editor is not the enemy. Is It's a collaborative process that's trying to help you do the best work possible. As long as we can all ascribe to avoid us, wiener us, that <laughs> this is how science moves forward. We wish you the best. We hope you are safe and healthy and take good care. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Hey, Cupotters. Don't forget to tell your friends to back the heck up. Six feet. Come on, six feet. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they prefer to get their other way less fun podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, where you can leave us a text or a voice message. You've been listening to Quantitude, putting the psycho in psychometrics. Today's episode is sponsored by Pajama Pants, one of the few things currently making research more enjoyable. And by the extended tenure clock, academia's latest band-aid on a bullet wound, and by the exponential growth function, which we seem to have become more interested in, well, exponentially. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>